podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, the shark bait has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly white. Just a so welcome everybody to this latest episode of Macklin's Take with me, Andy Clark and Matt Macklin. As always, hope everybody's well. Hope you enjoyed the boxing last week. Had a good time of it, bringing you plenty of, of build-up. Three podcasts last week, Adam Booth and then Fabio Wardley and the one and only Barry Jones just ticking up to the weekend. So I hope everybody got stuck into those. Plenty of stuff went up on YouTube too. We're we're raising our game, trying to add to our, our portfolio on that front. So if you haven't managed to get over there yet, then it'd be great if you could. And of course, click subscribe. That that would very much do us a favour. And and the ratings and reviews on, on iTunes, they do help. I know I, I chuck it out there every week or every other week whenever I remember to do it. But, but it just makes it easier for people to find us. So on to this week's episode. Now, I was going to say we're doing something a bit different this week and we, we kind of are and we kind of aren't really because you're used to how we, we go about this by now and we will look at specific fights sometimes, we will look at specific careers often but we spend a lot of time talking about more general kind of theoretical, philosophical even things that are attached to boxing, mindset, mentality, uh, performance, hopes, dreams, fears, nerves, all of these kinds of things, because they apply to all elite level sport. But I think in particular with boxing, they make for really interesting discussions just due to the, the unique nature of it. And I'll get to exactly what we're going to talk about in, 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 just, a, in just a second. But today I'll uh, introduce our, our guest up front. Usually I embark on a fairly long rambling intro, but um I think it's probably best if I if I just introduce him and then I'll get to what we're talking about. So we're joined today by Professor Damien Hughes, who many of you will know, I'm sure, from the high performance podcast he does with Jake Humphrey. If you like Macklin's take, then you will enjoy that. So if you haven't managed to find find that yet, then then get on it because it's it's a really good listen. They talk about a lot of the same things that that, that we do. And the guest list is is unreal. Uh, it's just, uh, it it really is. Um, there's been a couple of belters with Carl Frampton and, and Josh Warrington too, um, more boxing based who, who who we've had conversations with as well. But a whole host of a whole host of of other people, and that's his area really, Damien. Performance. How do people perform? What makes them perform? How have they adapted their their mindset, their mentality towards? producing the best possible performance how do you live a high performance life basically that's that's what it's about and he's steeped in boxing because his dad if if you didn't know is, is brian hughes who ran the collie hearst and Moston gym for 50 years changing thousands of lives gained an mbe for services to the community brought through champions as well but you know just a real heroic figure really in in in, in boxing one of those boxing stalwarts that that we know and love um uh, nobody can ever really understand the, the sacrifice and dedication that goes into playing that kind of role. Uh, you probably can, actually, Damien. You probably can. So, first of all, how are you? How are things? Thanks for having me on, Andy. Thank you, Matthew, as well. Uh, yeah, I'm good, thank you. I'm really, really chuffed to be uh, sat chatting with you. Uh, spoke to you off air, Andy, and said that I'm a big fan of yours. I like the podcast. I like uh, your analysis, and I've enjoyed listening to it. So, um, I'm humbled and excited to be invited thank you well it's um 
This is going to be an interesting one. I think this is going to be an interesting one. Macklin, how, how are things with you? Yeah, good. Can't complain. Uh, all geared up now for the uh, pay-per-view event. Um, Dillian White. So we'll see. He has to obviously repeat or, or revenge. But uh, I think he can do it. Well, you'll know the result by the time you listen to this. We're recording on Friday, kind of early afternoon. The weigh-in's just just been and gone. It looks, it looks amazing in Gibraltar. really did look fantastic over there. Um, just a just an immense immense setting. So what we're talking about today was was inspired by something an exchange you had with Fabio Wardley, Matt, and it's a kind of exchange that you've had a few times during the course of the podcast with various fighters. And what happens is you say to yourself, or you say to whoever it is, Fabio, Carl Froch, Darren Barker, guy, you know, when I look back on this 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 whole career, I just think we must have been mad to do this. You know, why did we do this? Why did we choose to box? It just doesn't make any sense. And then you'll both start laughing um, and I'll kind of chuckle and, and shake my head a little bit. Or you'll be talking about the excruciating fear and nerves, the stomach churning feeling when you're waiting to go out there, whether amateur or pro, and you'll both start laughing. Um, and I'll sit there again and kind of chuckle and, and shake my head. So the big question we're going to kick off with today, with, with that in mind, um, I guess it's kind of boxing's, it's boxing's kind of existential question in, in, in the sense is, why does anyone choose to do it? It's a very simple question in a sense, but it's a, it's a difficult answer. Why does anyone choose to do it? Because it is a choice. Some people will have more limited options than others, but they choose to do it. Circumstances, situations, environments, backgrounds, they can play a big part, but still you choose to do it. So what is it about the people who, who make that choice? What causes them? to make that choice, because that fascinates me. I, I played a lot of sport when I was a kid, um, and I wouldn't say that I was ever afraid of anything, but I couldn't be a fighter. I couldn't right. be a fighter, and I know I couldn't be a fighter. So, Damien, we'll, we'll come to you first with this one. I don't expect a definitive answer, or it would be a pretty short podcast, but, you know, you've <laughs> been around fighting. That's a fascinating question, Andy. I think it's um, – I, and I think it lies at the heart of it. I, I, I was lucky enough to do uh, – some um, boxing biographies a few years ago. So I, I, I did one on Sugar Ray Robinson and then did two on uh, Tommy Hearns and then did one on the late, great Marvin Hagler and got a chance to explore this question in quite a lot of detail. And my conclusion is that there's three reasons why we do anything in life, but it answers it in particular in boxing, that we do things through desperation, we do things through rationalisation, or we do things through inspiration. So what do I mean by that? Well, you get some people that go into a boxing ring because it's the only thing they know. It's almost like an escape from from poverty and escape from difficult circumstances and escape from life and the challenges that it's dealt with you. So it's almost like that that case of um, that fury that comes out of fighting through a sense of desperation. Then as you progress, you get to a sense of rationalization that you get a level of skills and you go, I can... like this is where I can get the best reward for the talents that I have. So there's a very logical process where you go through of rationalization, um, rationalizing the sort of bruises and the fears and things like that because of the rewards that come from it. And then finally you get some fighters that do it just through inspiration. They do it because they love it. They do it because there's nowhere else I'd rather be. It's the, it's in that ring where they feel most alive. They love the grind of training, the road work, the preparation, they love being in the spotlight. And I think all three of them are valid reasons. But I think what you find is the guys that 
make their way through from desperation to rationalization and get to inspiration as quickly as possible are the ones that tend to sustain a career for a long time um, at the highest levels. So Matt, when you, when you started it, 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 you're interesting actually, because people talk a lot about fighters, as Damien just said, starting out of desperation, very limited options, maybe from, you know, a rough background, difficult circumstances. And that's, that's why they choose it. it. Like I said, it still is a choice, but the fewer options you've got, then the chances of picking any one of them is is increased. That's just simple maths. You had a number of options. You started a university degree. There are plenty of things that, that you could have done, but you you chose this. I mean, can you even remember why? I, don't know, I must have got dropped on my head or something when I was a baby. <laughs> This is that's exactly what I mean, though. That's exactly what I mean. That that's your go-to whenever you're kind of asked or whenever you debate this question. Does that mean basically that you don't, you just don't really, you don't really understand why you chose it? No, I, I, I think. I mean, listening to Damien talk there, if I was going to say any one of those three, I think it would have been inspiration. You know, I, um, I didn't have to do it. I wasn't from a deprived back. You know what I mean? I had options. I was doing. You know, I pulled out of a law degree because I was you know, boxing for England in the ABA, you know what I mean? So it was, um, I don't know, I just, I think it's the ultimate challenge from, if I think, in, in sport, for when, what I found anyway, you know, there's, you know, you could be part of a team and, and, and there's, don't get me wrong, there's sometimes I think, you know, it would have been easier and more enjoyable to do a team sport. You've got that team spirit, you've got the camaraderie, you've got the shared pressure. You know, so there is, you know, if you're playing in a cup final, you're going to feel nerves, but it's shared, you know what I mean? And I don't know, boxing is just sort of like, oh, oh, we joke about it. It's almost like the heroin, do you know what I mean? The ag- literally is the agony or the ecstasy. There isn't much, you know, in between. And um, I think, yeah, for me, I think it was inspiration. I, I, I used to watch the, the, the fights and I used to feel the excitement for the fights. I used to stay up till four in the morning, watch the build up. Um, you know, I used to watch, listen, the Rocky films. No, there's no point pretending you didn't love the Rocky films. You were growing <laughs> up in the in the eighties. You know what I mean? It's it's inspirational. Every and and there's a moral to every every film in the uh, in the Rockies. There's always sort of like lessons to be learned. Um, but no, I think for me, yeah, probably the inspirational. I just thought it was the you know the man to man, the one on one. You know, you, you kind of live and die by it yourself. It's like, you know what I mean? There's no, you can't blame the poor performance on anyone. You have to take absolute responsibility. But then don't get me wrong, on the plus side, you get to sort of achieve and, and, and sort of, I don't know, receive the glory all by yourself. So there's, um, yeah, no, I, I think I think if I was going to listen to Damien, I was going to put on any one of those, it would be inspiration. Hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital podcast coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go. This is so crazy.
I think a key word there, I think a couple of kind of interesting things that come out of what you said there is is, is one word would be responsibility. But, but also when you talk about, you know, the, the, the credit is yours, the blame is yours and, and the kind of the glory of it. There's, there's definitely a, an ego pride side to boxing, which is bigger than maybe it is in, in other sports and possibly dominates in, 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 in a way that it doesn't in other sports. We'll, we'll kind of get to that in a, in a second. But Damien, the, the responsibility side of it, that, that, that's always struck me like it is a big one because a lot of fighters do say to me, I started in team sports and I was good like Matt was, but it just used to really piss me off when someone else didn't care as much as me. And I just thought, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to box because that is down to me. Then the blame is mine. The credit is mine. And they just preferred it that way. I think that's really, I think it's a really important point that I think a lot of fighters will talk about that, that, the idea is you're not carrying anyone else. But I often encourage fighters to think that they are still in a team sport. So you're recruiting, you camp, the people around you, your coaches, you know, the people that you're going to listen to, your entourage, they're all part of your team. And I think it's important to take responsibility for all of that as well as fighters. You know, one of the biggest things that frustrates me as a fighter is somebody that comes out after a defeat and immediately starts blaming the coaches and starts looking to change camps because you because I think I've seen so many fighters let down with their entourages and the people they surround themselves with. So when you first start out, you tend to invest in what your coaches are telling you and listening to them. And then as you get more and more successful, you attract more and more hangers-on and people into that inner circle. And somebody in that inner circle, their job's really simple. They've just got to tell you how great you are. So, But it's a coach's job to tell you, areas you need to improve, areas you need to switch on and listen to. So when I see a fighter get beat, those hangers-on around them, I'll often say to them, well, it's not your fault because their job is to tell you you're great. So they have to find somebody to allocate and apportion blame to, which is where you often see fighters then acting on misguided advice because they haven't taken that, that understanding that you're responsible for recruiting your teammates. And that includes the people you listen to that are going to advise you. So there is an element of team of being a team player, even in an individual sport like that, that that needs to be taken seriously right from the very start of uh, of a fighter's career. Yeah, that that that's something that that you say a lot, Matt. Is that one of the key things is to get the is to get the right you know get the right the right people around you from the from the beginning. But but and we would all agree with that definitely, definitely, because there are a lot of there are a lot of there are a lot of sharks out there. With you though, did you? I mean, to what extent did you feel like you could, like your fate was in your your kind of own hands? Was was, was that a real attraction of it that you felt you like you were controlling your own destiny to an extent? I, I don't know if I thought that much about this part of it. Why that attracted me to choose boxing? I don't know if I sat there and you know consciously went through this in my head about. You know, I've only got my, I can take responsibility and I don't have to carry it. I don't, I don't think it was, I don't think it happened like that. I think just think, you know, I was playing other sports or boxing as well. And boxing just started to feel more important to me than the others. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it wasn't, it wasn't like I sat there with a strategy and consciously thought, you know what, I don't want to carry people. I want to be, choose my own destiny. I want to be in charge. You know what I mean? That didn't happen. I was just, I was playing other sports. Like, as you do, you're through your teams, you get, you know, things start get to get a bit more seriously, you start excelling a bit more at others or whatever, you start enjoying 
boxing a bit more. And yeah, I'm starting to excel. And then it's like, well, something has to give. Do, you, do I want to like carry, do I want to play every sport and be, which is impossible anyway, from a, a time and commitment point of view, but do I want to be a jack of all trades and a master of none? Or do I want to focus on one and give it everything I've got? And it was more of that really, um, which kind of happened around the age of about 16, 17. Yeah, about that age, left school, so yeah, 17-ish. And also then I was training five days a week, five nights a week. And and also then, I, you know, I had a couple of injuries playing, I think, Gaelic football and that, done the ligaments in my ankle. And I just thought, I don't, I like Gaelic football and it's a summer thing or whatever, but I, don't, I didn't want to, do you know what I mean? I didn't want to risk tearing the ligaments in my ankle again and then missing out on, on the championships in the September. So that was that was what kind of probably pushed me then. To, to step away from the other sports. Um, but yeah, I think, look, when, when we say, we laugh about the boxing and we say, why would you do it in that? Well, I'll tell you why you do it. This is the bottom of it, top and bottom, I think. That feeling when you win, we talk about highs and lows, it's just astronomically, you're in the absolute, you're in space, that's how high you are, you know what I mean? And don't get me wrong, when you lose, <laughs> you are at a rock, I mean, it's terrible, the feel, the loneliness, that it's just horrendous. So why would you risk feeling that low because yeah. the high is so high. That's what it is. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable when you win in box. Like I said, you can become man of the match in a, in, in a cup final, but you're still, and you're buzzing, don't get me wrong, but you, it's shared, isn't it, among the team? And that's brilliant team spirit and it's all party party and it's great. But I don't know, there's just something about when you win in boxing, it's, you, it, it's unbelievable. And I suppose because because the fear comes from knowing that if you lose, you're going to feel how low you're going to feel. And then it's like, I think part of the high is the relief that you're not feeling low. It's, it's hard to explain, really. But, you know, when you speak to any other fighter, if you know, you know, it's just, you know, and when, sometimes when you talk about the nerves, Andy, as you rightly said, we do, we, we'll start laughing together with, you know, fighters about, oh, well, you feel, you're shitting yourself when, you walk, when the guy comes in the whip and says, right, five minutes or something, and you get that blast of nerves. But you, you're laughing because you're laughing with them, you know, because you're a, you share that you can, you can identify exactly with that horrible feeling. You know what I mean. So it's it's just it's hilarious. Yeah, Damien, the, the the yeah, listening to that, you know, I'm I'm always aware that 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 we're different, me and Matt. I'm different to the professional boxers that I that I speak to. I don't have the same attitude towards boxing, obviously that that they have that I couldn't that I couldn't have done it. Matt's just describing there a kind of a life that you choose of of ridiculous, most people would think, highs and lows, a life of of just wild extremes that that most people just don't want, really. Do do they? I mean, that, that's the thing. That maybe that's what you know, they are they are a kind of special breed because most people don't want that. They don't they would rather not risk the massive low thinking that they'll get the huge high. They'd rather just kind of stay somewhere more in the middle. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think there's that great quote from Customato, and this is where all great, all great boxing coaches are all great psychologists, aren't they? And D'Amato had said that fear is a friend of exceptional people. It's the idea that it's only exceptional people that can make peace with that and be comfortable with those highs and lows of risking winning big, but risking losing everything as well. And that's why boxing to me is the ultimate sport that needs to be respected because like Matt says there, that that you are gambling the house on. Uh, uh, on it every time that you uh, that you step in between the ropes, and that's why it, it, 
it, it's long fascinated me. I, I always think that boxing is one of those sports where everything that you do outside the ring manifests itself inside because there's nowhere to hide there. So I've seen it over the years, like growing up in uh, in uh, in the gym with my dad. I've got like everything that you do manifests. So I remember he he like he worked with a young lad who was incredibly talented, but he was always five minutes late. So when he came in the gym, he was always a few minutes late. He was a sort of lad. The best way I could describe him was he would get up and do his road work when he woke up, but he would never wake up to do his road work. So he'd never set an alarm. So he never had to experience the discomfort of getting out of bed when you're tired. You never had to find a way of getting yourself out on the road when you don't want to. And he was always five minutes late and he'd walk in the gym and he'd have a, he'd have a quip or a joke and he'd get everyone laughing and distract his five minutes late. And I, I remember once watching him in a fight where he got to the highest level that he was going to do. He was boxing first, sort of one of those um, interim world titles. And he boxed the first six rounds and won it by a mile. The last six rounds, he never put his opponent away. And that was where he had to find a way of living with that discomfort of getting through when he didn't want to get through, when his body was screaming at him to retire. And you could see his mindset shifted when he was coming back to the corner. He was he was saying, how long left? How many rounds to go? And he was starting to panic. And the reality was he lost it on a, on a split decision. I remember my dad saying to me when we were driving home that night, he said, he didn't lose the fight tonight. He's lost it over the last 10 years. All those five minutes where he's been late, all the times where he's chosen to lie in bed rather than set an alarm and get up, all that seeps into your character. And ultimately, when you're in the ring, it seep, it, it, it manifests itself. There's nowhere to hide. And, and that's why it's long fascinated me because it's not the night under the rope, um, under the lights of the ring. It's the way you live your life, it's everything about it. It's a complete dedication. You know, you play rugby, you play football, but you don't, but you only box. It's a verb in its own right. And I think it because it takes everything, it, it's about your whole character is put on display. And that's why to me it's the most fascinating of all the sports. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Yeah, the the, the discomfort is. Matt, do you remember talking to Paulie, Paulie Malinadji, and and he came out with a neat phrase. He said that all fighters, the sooner you can get comfortable with being uncomfortable, the better. And that's that's what Damien's talking about there, isn't he? Because there's no point trying to pretend that a terrible hard night when you have to dig deep isn't in the post because because it is. But at the same time, we've all seen that that scenario that he outlined there where somebody looks great and then they really do have to go to the well and they can't they can't do it no yeah look when you train for a fight you're training for speed you're training for technique drills skills little scenarios and combinations that you're going to think are going to work of course you're training that but also whether you consciously are aware of this or not you're training your mind to go to a place that it might <laughs> that it might have to go to that let me tell you if you haven't trained your mind to go there you won't be able to go there then it's a fucking dark place 
Do you know what I mean? You know, we talk about people being up for it. You know, you've got to be up for it. Yeah, but you don't just have a, a conversation with yourself in the changing rooms to be up for it. That getting up for it has been happening for 10 weeks or eight weeks or whatever it has been since you've been training for the fight. You know, getting up at five o'clock in the morning to run in the cold, there's absolutely no physical benefit of doing that at all. But there is a mental benefit. There is character building getting out of your bed when it's warm and you're just at that perfect temperature and you're getting out, it's cold, it's dark, you think, fuck it. Oh, you could easily, you know, you're having that, all of a sudden, you, you, part of your, you know, you're having that conversation with yourself where you're thinking, you're justifying sleeping in, thinking, well, you know what, I'm sparring later, I'm probably better if I just stayed in, because really if I ran it and taken out of it, you're justifying the fact that you don't want to get out of the bed. That's the reality. But then you've got the, part, the other part of you, which is saying, get the fuck up, get out there, Get that one done. Because if you don't do it, don't be crying after this fight when you've run out of steam or whatever's happening. Do you know what I mean? And like sometimes that conversation going on for about 10, 15 minutes, you know, because you, you genuinely thinking, I don't want to get out of the bed. But then the other <laughs> part of you is thinking, I don't want to be crying in six weeks' time. You know what I mean? I don't want to feel that pain. Get out of the bed. And that's so there's like I say, there's no there's no physical benefit again. And I'm not, I'm not saying fighters have to run at five in the morning, whatever. Do you know what I mean? But I'm just saying. The, the thought process in that is the fact that it builds that character, that mental toughness, because you're you're doing something you don't want to do. And that's when, you know, we talk Rocky Three, Eye of the Tiger, doing things you don't want to do, facing your demons or whatever. These are things which build that inner strength. It builds that self-belief. It builds the Eye of the Tiger. You don't just sit down. We, we can all watch Rocky Three and Eye of the Tiger comes on. We think, fucking hell. I'll, you know, I'll win a world title. If you jump out there and you do anything, well, that quickly wears off, doesn't it? When the pain kicks in, or you know, over, over remember, one my day. My dad used to say, Matt, that he always used to say there was two times when the membership of the club went through the roof. One was New Year when people set New Year's resolutions, and the second time was when Rocky was on telly. Because <laughs> the other two times everyone comes in, and then very quickly the membership drops off a cliff by the same numbers. A couple yeah. of weeks later, when you realise the reality of it. Because it's easy staying motivated when fucking Eye of the Tiger comes on or you just watch the Rocky movie, but it's 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 keeping that motivation, isn't it? It's keeping that inspiration over the six and eight weeks when it's cold and wet and you're on your own and you're pissed off and your pals are going out or whatever else, you know what I mean? It's maintaining that. That comes back to that idea of what we were talking earlier about. That's where that's where the inspiration kicks in. Inspiration keeps you going. Rationalisations, that conversation in your head where you go, you know what, I'll stay in bed and justify it. You know what I mean? Desperations where you've just got no choice. You have to do it. So they're all relevant, but like you say, inspiration will keep you in camp for eight weeks, keeping that discipline when nobody else is uh, is watching you or knows what you're doing. You know, I'll give you a, like a simple example is it, that I remember like growing up in the club, my dad used to have a, a rule there where you weren't allowed to use bad language. And it wasn't a moral judgment of using bad language, but his point was, if you couldn't think of anything else to say rather than effing and blinding, that showed a lack of discipline, that you couldn't hold your tongue, you couldn't keep quiet rather than fill the silence with an F word or something like that. So it used to be as soon as you swore, 10 press-ups, get down. And what was interesting was that in that environment, you'd have lads that were coming in who could F and blind with the best of them, but the moment they crossed that threshold, they realised that discipline was non-negotiable in that world, that you had to discipline your mouth as well as your mind as well as your body in the ring and it was about reinforcing all those small things those moments of discomfort that got you ready for being in the ring to be able to live with it 
Yeah, I remember you, you on, on your podcast, you and Jake talking to Clive Woodward, and that was one of their team rules, wasn't it? Was that you don't, you dress smart, you're on time, but no, no bad language. Yeah, that, and that was not, yeah, and people misinterpret it because people copy things like that and think it's a gimmick. All oh, right, we won't do it then. And the reality was it, that there's no point in not doing that because it's not a moral judgment. It's about well, what's the purpose of it? And the purpose is it's about discipline. It's about respect for other people, and 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 then. Like one of their rules was 10 minutes, um, uh, what they called the Lombardi rule. If you have a meeting, you turn up 10 minutes early because that shows that you've thought about it, you committed to following it through. And then you, so I'll give you another example of a of another individual athlete from the podcast series we did that um, there was a knock on the door one day and our appointment time was 10 o'clock, ironically. And at 10 to 10, there's a knock on the door. I go and open it and stood outside is Sir Chris Hoy. Now, I'd never met Chris before, so I sort of introduced myself and he comes in and I just casually said to him, I said, oh, thanks for being on time, Chris. It makes the interview and the rest of the day go nicely. And he took offence at me thanking him for arriving on time. Now, when I sort of pursued it a bit more, I said, well, why would you take offence at that? He went, well, there's three non-negotiables that I have. He said, the first one is that if I show up late, that indicates I think I'm more important than you or my time's more significant than yours. And he went, that's just unthinkable. So he demonstrated a respect for other people, humility that he didn't think that being the best Olympian in British history bought him any extra credit, and a commitment that I've said I'll be here at 10 o'clock, I'll be here at 10 to 10, so we can get going. Now, the question is, are they significant? Does that, so did that help him win a gold medal? Well, the answer is, well, it's the old saying that what we're discussing here, that when you come under pressure, you don't rise to the performance, you descend to the level of your training. And if you've been like that all the way through, is humility, respect and commitment going to help him when he's on the track waiting to race in an individual kilo? I'd argue that they're exactly what's what's going to help him perform. But they're not doing, he's not doing it occasionally. That's an everyday thing that's inculcated in every part of his character. And that's what you see with the best fighters are the same in terms of the way that they carry themselves, the way that they respect, the way that they've got that discipline, all those factors. Uh, I, I, I what separate the good from the great every time. It's those it's those little things that you do every single day. It's the daily habits that be, that, that becomes your character, becomes who you are, and that's and like as you say, when the going gets tough in a fight, half the time you're a fucking autopilot anyway. So it's your character and who you are and what you sort of programmed yourself to be. What's gonna yeah. what's gonna come out. Yeah, 100%. I remember having this row with the lad, and I won't say the name because it's not it's not fair on what I'd said, but he, he demonstrated to me um, a lack of backbone in a conversation that I'd seen him do something privately. And I pulled him up on it and I said, you know what, that to me demonstrates just a lack of backbone. And I said, and at some stage during your career, I promise you, you're going to come up against somebody that is as fast, as fit, as strong and as talented as you. And when you're in the ring together, it'll be whether you've got the ability to impose your will on it and do what you think is right rather than follow what somebody else has done. And he wouldn't have it. And then he ended up fighting on a um, on a big pay-per-view fight. And this is why I'm not telling you who it was, because it's not fair on the character. But he gave the first eight rounds of the fight away because he was fighting a lad that did have that resolve and was prepared to come and imposed his will on it. He gave eight rounds of the fight and then the last four rounds put up a bit of a flurry as if he was making an effort. But again, the point was he didn't lose the fight on that night. He lost it in the years beforehand when he was allowing himself to be influenced by 
other people, not not doing what he knew was right, doing what he felt would make him popular with other people. And all of this stuff is why boxing is such a great sport because it all manifests itself. It, it, it There's nowhere to hide, as you know, as well as I do, Matt, when you're in that ring, all those things, all those habits that define your character will are on full show for the rest of the world to see. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're if you're spewing it on the track, or you're spewing it on the circuit, or you're spewing it in the sparring, or you spew, you're not suddenly then going to dig deep on the night because if you're spewing it, that's you're someone that spews it, aren't you? When the going gets tough and someone turns the screw on you, you you, you don't go there. You don't you don't sort of match them and go back at them again. It's like you know, do you know what I mean? It's like you know, yeah. let's say we're running a race and boxing can be a bit like this. Say you're running the race and someone kind of ups the pace. You know, if you want to stay with him, you've got to go with him, don't you? Otherwise, yeah. it's going to build up too big of a lead. And, you know, if you up, you match him and then you up him and see, can he stay with you? And you're breaking that person. All right, not in boxing. This is just running. But you can imagine in that a long distance run, you're trying to break the person, aren't you? You're trying to break their will. But yeah. that's that, that's that's similar what's going on in boxing in, in, in a fight that's 50-50 and hard four. But if you haven't, if you, and it goes back to the training, the preparation, the mindset. If you haven't built that mindset over the course of the training for the fight, it's very unlikely that you're going to have it on the night. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I think, like, I often encourage fighters. Well, I work a lot with coaches, head coaches, and but I give them the same advice that I'd give fighters. I say, you can surround yourself with either truth tellers or time tellers. And where that phrase comes from was, I was doing some work years ago with a coach and uh, we were in his coaching box during this game. And uh, he turned to his two assistants, you're getting beat, and he turned to his assistants and you could see he was frazzled he didn't know what to do and he said to the two lads in the box with him any ideas and they both went uh, there's 20 minutes left and I remember stood there thinking I could have fucking told you there was 20 minutes left like they've offered no value but what I'd said to the coach afterwards was you've created a culture where those lads were frightened to give you ideas because you worried about you'll tear the red off or, uh, or you'll have a crack at them or they're worried about making a mistake. So they don't tell you the truth. They just tell you the time. And I think that's, again, when you go back to uh, to fighters, have you got people around you that say to you, you really need to stop making excuses. You really need to train a bit harder. You really need to stay in tonight in your, uh, you know, during a training camp. Or have you got people that tell you, oh, you're fucking great. You're a champion. You don't need to worry about that. The other guy won't be able to live with you. Because again, all of that starts to seep into your character and you start finding excuses. You start rationalising reasons not to do the right thing because you're surrounded by people that are reinforcing it. It's almost like an echo chamber uh, of your own thoughts and your own excuses. So again, that's why I often say it, it's important to think about the people that you're allowing into that inner circle. We had a conversation on the podcast with... Um, the goalkeeper, Casper Michael, and he had a great line. He just said, he was talking about social media. He said, I don't go on it. He said, what do I need some Herbert telling me whether I should have made a save for or not when they don't know anything about goalkeeping? And he, he described it. He said, I have a committee of six people that have earned the right to be in my world. And those six people, if they told me I should have done better as a goalkeeper, I'll listen to them because they understand the work I've done and what I'm trying to achieve. So if anyone outside that circle doesn't get a word in, you know, like they're entitled to opinion, but I don't have to listen to it because they've not earned the right to be there. And again, I think that's important for any athlete, not just fighters, to say, well, who like who's on your committee? Who are the people that when they give you advice, 
they like you're confident that they're giving the advice for the right reasons and that they know what they're talking about. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. So what one thing I'm I'm keen to to get your your thoughts on as well is and it'll be you'll be more useful to ask this of actually Damon the map because <laughs> with some of these questions because he did it and he is one it's he's him and we're and we're us if you know what I mean and it's yeah. kind of like it, it's 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 sort of impenetrable at times is that we don't see things the way that he sees them because that's his mindset and ours is and ours is different anyway I'm kind of rambling a bit but the the question I've got is I'm a painfully logical person to to the point where it pisses my wife off like you would not believe at times but I'm a painfully logical person so's Macklin in a lot of ways in a lot of ways but he's got this this part of his brain if you like he's got this part of his brain if you like that 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 made him choose boxing which I would argue is not logical I would say there's a battle that goes on there between kind of logic if you like and and like ego or pride what I mean is he, he was talking a bit ago about how you make yourself do things you don't want to do um, and that is boxing training to a T. But fighters also will always choose, I think, by, by my logic, to do things that they shouldn't do. Yeah. You know, if you're really badly hurt in a fight, you should stop. In other sports, they stop. And their coaches will bollock them if they don't stop because it could end your career. A fighter will never do that. If you get injured two or three weeks out from, from a fight and it's going to really impact you, you should tell everybody and, and have a chat and probably pull out. They'll never do that either. You know, there are certain things they will never do yep. that just don't really seem to make any. Is it that kind of a sport where basically your your pride, where it's important that your pride will always win against against logic? Well, I mean, it's a brilliant question. I'd, I'd, I'd say, first of all, I've got real empathy for fighters in terms of not being so honest because it's a tough, tough industry with some of the promoters out there that will very quickly replace you. And, and you know, I, I remember sat in a, a meeting once with one promoter that sort of changed the contract of a fighter the day before a fight and told him that they already had his replacement staying in a hotel down the road. So those stories get passed on. So people, so I, I get why fighters would sometimes be a bit circumspect in not being honest about those injuries. But I think it comes back. I think, I think a fighter has to reconcile himself with the fact that he's going in to get hurt. And like Matt says, you're going to go to some dark places. So that, is the fighter's job. But I think that, again, comes back to, that's where you need good people around you. That's where you need coaches that 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 are not brave on your behalf. You know, the, the coaches that remember that when the fighter goes forward, they walk backwards. So they don't need to start making promises on your behalf that their job is uh, is to protect you from, from yourself, first and foremost. You know, and that's why I think that 
the best coaches are the ones that will have that conversation with a fighter very early on in the relationship and say to them, listen, my job is to make sure that you walk out of here with your features intact, that your brain not scrambled and, and, uh, and feel that you can live the rest of your life beyond a career. And that, like the best coaches, I'll, I'll be clear about that. And therefore, they're the ones that will pull you out even when you don't want to. You know, any fighter doesn't want to get pulled out, anyone worth the salt, but the best coaches are the ones that will do it. Like, you think about the Joe Frazier example in the, in that final fight with Ali, where he still wanted to go out and fight, but it was Eddie Forge that stopped him from, uh, that protected him from himself. I remember talking to my dad once where he, he he told me about one of his fighters where he said to him, if, he, if things are not going well by the fifth round, I'll pull him out with a shoulder injury because there was no point in keeping him. Like he never had that conversation with the fighter, but he took the flak from it to protect him from himself because he knew that if it had gone any longer, he was going to ship a lot of punishment and get himself hurt. And he saw it as a dereliction of his duty in the corner to do that. And I think the best coaches are the ones that will make those decisions uh, and save a fighter. I mean, a good, a good technique, if there's any sort of boxers listening to this that think, well, how do I have this? And again, on the podcast, we did a really good interview with um, the SAS guy, Ant Middleton. And he he, he shared an idea because I see that sort of elite, um, elite soldier similar to sort of fighting mentality. And he spoke about the idea is before we'll go into a battle, we'll do an, we'll do an exercise called a pre-mortem. And a pre-mortem says, now I know what my game plan is of how I'm going to win the fight. A pre-mortem says, what could kill me? What are all the things that could go wrong that could derail me? Now, you're not going to do this in the week of a camp, but if you do it at the start of a camp and say, right, what could go wrong? And you identify all the things that could happen. You then have a plan in place to do something about it. So I'll give you a really simple example that you can see fighters that have engaged in this, whether it's conscious or unconscious, versus fighters that haven't, is ever have a look when there's a flash knockdown and have a look at how a fighter responds to it. The fighter that hasn't thought about it, I guarantee when they get, uh, when they get put down, they jump up on the first one or two seconds because they're desperately trying to prove to their opponent that they're not hurt. The fighters that have thought about it, even though it might have been a slip and they don't regard it as fair, will stay sat down. They'll stay there for a couple of seconds. They compose the thoughts, have a look to the corner, get a bit of a game plan, get up on the knee at four or five. They're standing on the feet at five or six, let the referee know they're ready, and then they can go back in and impose their will on the fight. That's a pre-mortem that you planned, how am I going to handle getting put down? Now, you see all of these techniques, that this is all mindset stuff. This is all stuff that is controllable for any fighter. The best fighters are thinking fighters. The ones that don't are the ones boxing on pure emotion. And they're the ones that will often find themselves having to weather more difficult storms, uh, I'd estimate. Yeah, that, that's that, that's an interesting one, that the extent to which you might kind of plan for the plan for the worst because some people won't because they think it's defeatist and they don't want to allow that into their into their head Adam Boo touched on that last week and Matt we'll get to that in just a second but to go back to what I said at the beginning there uh, with Damien do you kind of you, you might laugh at me for this but do you kind of feel like there's almost sort of two parts to your brain where there's the one that you use for normal everyday things which is rational and logical and then there's you're, you're the one that you use for boxing, which is has a rationale and logic of its own, but which is completely different to the other one. 
Well, look, it's interesting here, Damien talked there about, he talked about emotions uh, and, and then being thinking, thinking fire, because obviously, you know, sometimes the heart can overrule the head. It's not that you don't have the capability to think, but it's just that what's happened is your heart's overruled it. Uh, that happened with me loads of times. You know, there was like, there was fights when I was like, you know, super fit, trained so hard for, yeah, maybe nearly run out of steam or, you know, got close to a point where I did run out of steam really, but then I was, you know, experienced enough to kind of blag it a little bit and get through those last rounds. But I had kind of shot my bolt, so to speak. But that wasn't because, that was because my heart overruled my head and I, and I, I thought I was fighting on emotions and I was risking it and I was gambling it and I was a gunsling and I was in the heat of the battle and my heart was on, was running the show now. But actually fights where wasn't as well prepared because I was injured or it was a different trainer and we got let down on sparring or whatever. There were, you know, many different factors, but there were times, there were certainly fights where I wasn't tip top, let's say. So in those fights, funnily enough, I pissed doing the 10 rounds or the 12 rounds. I breezed them because I was constantly conserving energy because I wasn't, I didn't have, you know, I didn't allow my heart to overrule my head because it was it, it, there was probably the element of fear that I knew I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. So, yeah, the, it, it, so so funnily enough, there was there was times that I was super super fit, trained like a demon, and you know shot my bolt because my heart overruled my head. I wasn't thinking enough. I wasn't conserving energy. I was I was in the moment and I was fucking loving it. And I was in the heat of the battle and I was just yeah fighting. Where other times were. You know, I, I was in the head a bit more and I was thinking about things. I was, you know, conserving energy and I, I was very I was very aware of the energy expenditure, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you, you do have the two different aspects. You, you, you said two different mindsets, but I think whatever way you describe that, Andy, but I, I just think it's the heart and the head. It's the fighting spirit, the heart, and then there's the mind. And if you're in the mind, you'll, you'll think tactically and it'll be game plan and you'll be conserving energy and all the rest of it. But the heart can overrule the head and that can be a good thing. When the, when the shit's hit the fan, you dig in and you find something extra, that can be the heart pulling you out of the shit. But sometimes as well, the heart can overrule the head and that's not necessarily always the wisest thing. See, I think that's a brilliant point you're making, Matt, because I think that, I think the best boxers, like, it's, it's like that old saying, it's chess with gloves on. And I think it's where the courage to get in the ring and, and to be fired up to implement your plan and impose your will is all the emotion or what I often work with athletes on. It's like the red, I, I call it the red thinking system. So it's all that courage and that, and that resolve and that, and that commitment. And then you get into the bit where you fall back on all those habits that you talk about. You said, you can't remember. You just like, you're slipping a punch and you're not consciously doing it. That's hours of repetition that have just been embedded in, into you. But then the blue thinking bit, the logical bit, is the bit that allows you to read the fight in the moment that you're doing it. You're seeing that your opponent is starting to fade, like, you know, he normally carries his hands high and now he's started to drop them. So you can read that tell, like in poker, and you know that fatigue's setting in for him and the right-hander will start to uh, connect with him a little bit more. So it's a combination. So it's not either the heart or the head. It's actually both. How do you combine both of them? so that you've got that courage and that willingness to bite down when you're in the shit. But equally, you can read a game plan and switch it quickly to be able to counter whatever your opponent's doing or, or you know, or read what they're doing. 
I'll give you an, an example. I remember being in the corner years ago in 96 when, uh, when Robin Reed went out to Milan to beat Vincenzo Nardiello. And I remember being there and I was sort of listening. And my job was just to sort of keep an eye on my dad and sort of give him a nudge when things were going. And I remember coming up to the end of the sixth round, I, I, I remember being, like thinking, what would I say now if I had to get in the corner and I had to give it any instructions, what would I do? And I remember sort of running through my head because the game plan had been box on the back foot, keep moving, like don't stay still against Nardiello, tire him out. And it was going almost perfectly to plan. And I remember thinking, if I got in there, I'd probably play it cautiously and go, keep doing what you're doing, you know, keep it up, don't, uh, don't get complacent or something like that. And I remember my dad got in the corner and and he delivered his, his talk in just five words. He got in and he said to Reed, he said, uh, he said, uh, sit down when you punch. And Reed went, yep. And he went, just sit down when you punch. And that was it. And he sent him out and he knocked Nardiello out to win the to win the super middleweight title. Now I was lucky enough that I'd, like, I'd, 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 I was still living at home at the time, and and I asked my dad afterwards. I said, "I thought it took balls to do that. What like what was it?" And it was like those months of of logical analysis that that watched Nardiello, and one of his traits was he always carried his hands high, and he'd noticed in the fifth round that he was struggling to keep his hand up high, and it was starting to drop. So he thought he was obviously getting tired here. So those those autopilot behaviours are starting to uh, become difficult. But he thought, I'll give it another round. And in the sixth round, he noticed that he, he, he almost couldn't keep his, his hand up high, which was why he realised that that was the time when fatigue was going to set in. And actually hitting him with some booming uh, shots would probably start to wobble him more than what he had done beforehand. And that's almost a, an explanation of the logical part of it. Again, where a good coach can almost feed in. If you're in that logical brain and not in the emotional brain of, I'll fucking kill him but you're open to that logic of somebody saying to you, sit down when you punch, just plant your feet now, stop moving, start boxing in a different way. Your logical brain can take it on and you can change your game plan in the middle of a fight and interpret what's happening. So I think it's a combination of both and rather than either or, but also having good people around you that can feed that information in a way that you can logically take it and actually be able to go and implement it. That's yeah, a- I mean... When, I was, when we talk about part rolling the head, I suppose one that that can be admirable when you see someone passionate digging in and just trading all on heart. It's exciting. You know, we talked about Joe Frazier there, like you're just emptying the tank. But, you know, it, the really the key is to kind of have that passion and that emotion and that drive, but also maintaining focus and, you know, awareness and, you know, being in control still. You know, yeah. staying calm in the madness, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. I'll tell you another funny story, though, again, where it links to a lot of what we're talking about. Remember, like in the early 2000s, um, I, uh, my dad was training a lad called Michael Gomez, that some of you might remember. And he was boxing. He was due to box for, I think it was like a, a European title. And Frank Warren had put him in in a warm-up fight in Witness. This like The European title fight was like November, uh, it was February, March time. And they give him like a bit of a tune-up fight in the, in the November in Witness. Now, I don't know if you've ever had the, had the fortune of going to witness at any time, but going there in November is a bit of a bleak experience. And they brought some Mexican kid over as a uh, just to sort of be an opponent. And everything we were hearing in the week of the fight was this lad didn't fancy it. It was cold. It was miserable. He knew he was coming for a payday. <laughs> and Gomez had asked if he could have somebody carry his British title belt into the ring, one of his mates. 
So it was agreed. And he got in the ring and uh, his mate got carried away with the emotion and went over to this Mexican and started doing throat cutting gestures at him and saying to him, you're fucking dead. You're going down. I remember seeing this Mexican lad. He went from pure logic of, I'm going to get out of here in about two or three pounds. So his emotional brain got triggered. And he was like, I'm not having anyone fucking insult me like this. And his pride got stung. And he ended up giving Gomez one of the toughest 12-round fights of his life. That he just dug in this lad and for 12 rounds, stood toe-to-toe with him like they were in a telephone box and went to war with him. And again, I remember thinking afterwards that, you can't anticipate those moments that you'd have somebody carrying your belts in the ring who gets carried away on your behalf that can end up causing you to have one of the toughest nights of your fighting life. So again, you can see how getting everybody bought into this understanding of what's going on psychologically, both for the fighter and the people around them and making sure that you're using the emotion in the right way that gives you the fuel, but the logic to be able to read a game plan and implement your own tactics is critical. Yeah, I think I think that that um, those five words that that your dad gave to Robin Reed, they're they're genius, aren't they? Because that is technical boxing advice, and he would recognise immediately what that meant and how to employ it. But what he's also really saying is now is the time to start hitting him hard. Yeah, but without saying that, you got to but say without saying it. exactly. He's come back to the ring. He's come back to the corner. You know, ox is is gasping for oxygen. He's under pressure. You know, he's got a million things going on in his mind. So that's why the best coaches are the ones that can just deliver your message in the simplest term as possible. Give you one point to take away and do something with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we haven't got too much time left, but we've got to get into this final one before we uh, before we go, because this is something we, we talk about a lot. And, and this is the kind of tightrope that fighters walk between self-belief and self-delusion. And this is something that Matt's talked about often and it's true it's true isn't it you know when, when you look at the confidence that you have to try and carry it is bound to tip over into self-delusion at times it can't it can't really not can it Matt but were there ever times where how, how do you how do you keep it under control how, how do you feel confident that you're not deluding yourself I remember talking to Conor Ben a few months ago before his last fight uh, we're doing some work together for the radio. And and I just tossed that out there as a phrase. I said, ah, you, you fellas, you know, you're always walking that fine line between being self-confident and being self-deluded. And I wasn't referring to him at all, but I could see he was thinking about it. And then he said to me about 30 seconds later, you don't think I'm deluded, do you? And I just said, no, 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 I don't. I don't. It's just something that like Matt says it a lot and, and, and fighters say it a lot. But do you... Yeah, how, how hard is it to keep a grip on, on on where you actually are? Are you confident or are you deluded or or sometimes do you not have a fucking clue what's going on? <laughs> yeah, well, it could be a fine line, like I say. I mean, it's listen, when things are going well and you, 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 you've put a, I don't know, a string of consecutive big performances and wins together and you're winning titles and you're stepping up the levels and you're still winning and you're getting rave reviews, it's fucking easy to be confident. It's easy to believe in the dream. But when you've had a bad defeat that you didn't see coming and all of a sudden you're the forgotten man and no one's talking about you and then you've had an injury so now you're inactive and you haven't boxed for a year and the last fight was a loss at a level which you thought you'd have been way beyond at this point, that's when the fucking self-belief, that's when it's hard to keep the belief and to keep believing yourself. And I suppose when Sugar Ray Robinson said, champions have to believe in themselves even when no one else does, you know, 
that's at that point where you still believe you're going to go all the way and achieve this dream of becoming world champion or whatever your level you believe you're going to get to. But you're nowhere near it. Everything's going wrong. Not, you're not catching a break or an opportunity. You know, that's when it's hard to maintain that belief. But that some, some, that's when it's most important that you keep the belief and you keep the faith. And it, it's difficult. And, it, and it, you know, it can flip. You can flip from one to the other in a moment. You know what I mean? But I suppose then you've also then just got to persevere. You know, and that's where the perseverance and just sticking with it. And even like you, you might be in a situation where you think, I don't know how I'm going to get there because I'm so far from there that it's not even anywhere near in sight. But I, I know it's going to work out. I just yeah. have faith and belief that it's going to work out and I'm just going to keep going. And that, that, that's, what it, that's what it is. And that, that's, that's that perseverance, just sticking with it. You know, it's like the universe falls in love with a stubborn heart. You know what I mean? You just keep plowing yeah. forward and it comes. See, to answer that, I think what Matt's articulating there, Andy, is that I think when we talk about sort of delusion or that we need to view it as, as just one stage, there's three stages in terms of mindset of, uh, of all elite performers. The first stage we have to get through is peak idiot stage. And peak idiot stage is where you're deluded. So this is like, you know, when you see first pro, like the early stages of programs like X Factor, where you get somebody turning up and saying, oh, I want to sing like Mariah Carey, and then they sound like a cat being strangled, right? That's funny for us to watch because they don't realise how far away from good they are to realise just how shit they are. So you see that with fighters of, oh, I want to knock him out. Well, hang on a minute, you're deluded there. That he's not, your opponent's never been knocked out. You've not got a track record of knocking people out. So that's peak idiot stage of listening to it. Some people get stuck there forever. But the best move through it. And the third and the second stage is what I refer to as the valley of humility. And the valley of humility is where you're curious. You're constantly looking for how things work. How do I get better? How do I improve on that? What knowledge can I get that can uh, that can add to me? So it's all it, it's characterized by curiosity and open-mindedness. Because when you're confident about something, confidence is built on evidence. So you need to find evidence of why you're good at it why you can knock opponents out or why you're the best defensive fighter in the country, however you want to characterise yourself. And then the third stage is you get to the hill of knowledge and the hill of knowledge says, I know why I'm good and I can articulate why I'm going to win this fight. And it's based on logic and knowledge and evidence. Now, at any stage, you can go back into the valley to get even better and learn new techniques before going through it. But delusion is people that are stuck at peak idiot stage. They don't know why they're good so they don't know how far away from um, from excellent they are. Do you know what I mean? So I think the best fighters get through that quite quickly and 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 start asking questions and learning, rather than just relying on uh, on uh, on on their sort of dreams or or, or what they think or surrounded by people that just fuel that sense of delusion that uh, that's in them. Yeah, that, Matt, Matt, that that peak idiot stage is is like that's a particular danger for boxing, isn't it? Basically, because there are no league tables and recognised way of doing anything. So, as we say often, you can take any fighter pretty much to ten and zero or fifteen and zero, and they are in terrible danger of being a peak idiot. I mean, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, if you're 
if you're playing in the Vauxhall Conference and you're struggling every week, you, you know, you're not going to play for Man United, are you? Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's quite a rational thing that's not going to happen. But in boxing, you could box absolutely 10 hand-picked, you know, yeah. terrible level opponents, really. And you could suddenly start thinking, mm. <laughs> you know, you could start getting carried away with yourself, couldn't you? Well, how many fighters do you see that do that? Do you know what I mean? They, 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 they've never been in the trenches. They've had somebody that they've knocked over and then they start falling in love with the power. And that's why, listen to the interviews. That There's an old set, there's a concept in psychology called the Dunning-Kruger law that says, if you're good at something, you can explain why you're good at it. But if you're stupid, you're too stupid to understand why you shit at it. And that's why if you're a boxer that's been used to knocking out 10 hand-picked opponents, you start believing that I can knock everybody out. So when you face somebody that can tuck up and weather the storm from you and start hitting your back and you don't know how to ride it out or slip a punch or how to how to get through those difficult moments, there's a Dunning-Kruger law in evidence for you. But in boxing, you find yourself on your ass with everybody making judgments on you and your promoters deciding that they're going to move on to the next big thing. So the consequences of falling victim to that are more pronounced but more dangerous in boxing than any other sport. Oh, without a doubt. I love that. The Dunning-Kruger law. I'm <laughs> going to invoke the Dunning. I know I have quite a few people who need the Dunning-Kruger law rammed down their throat. I was talking for years. Like, I, like I, I, I was studying all this at the time when my dad was in the gym and he'd see, you'd see some of the guys and they, they were kidding themselves. And it was almost like my dad used to say, you can't tell them. Just let them, like reality will dawn on them in, in its own good time. Do you know what I mean? Like they've fallen in love with the power or, or they're walking around with a swagger and they've got <laughs> a new car. And it's like, life will teach them a lesson, not us. Do you know what I mean? It's not for us to tell them. Life is going to have to humble them and they're going to have to learn it by, by, by the most difficult way possible. Oh, I tell you, the Dunning-Kruger law is going to is going to pay a painful visit to some of those YouTube lads. That's for sure. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, you see it, don't you? That the like some of the chat that you hear. Some like I've never liked fighters giving out sort of like I like I've been part of fighters camps. You know, like when they do the press conference and and it's all about telling you I'm going to do this and do that. And I know they've got to hype it up and there's a marketing thing. But the most effective way I've ever seen the most the best pre-fight sort of um, matchup I've ever seen was I remember being in Cardiff in the mid-90s when Nassim Ahmed boxed Steve Robinson and I've sold so many fighters it and I've never seen another fighter do it but I thought it was brilliant when he went up to Steve Robinson and said thanks for giving me the chance to fight you and he said I'm that confident I'm going to beat you tomorrow night he said I'll give you my I'll give you my purse if you beat me and Steve Robinson's nodding and he goes can I have my, your purse if I beat you though and Steve Robinson looked to his corner man and Nassim went don't worry, don't answer the question. I've already beaten you. He said, because you don't believe that you're going to beat me. That's why you had to look for him for reassurance. And he took him into that valley of, <laughs> he took him into that valley of humility that he'd not prepared for. And he got into his head and he never had to swear at him. He never had to make a threat to him. He never had to get himself hyped up. He just quietly dismantled him before he even did it. And I just think, thinking, I said it earlier, thinking fighters are the best fighters, the fighters that spend time thinking about their craft are in that valley of humility. They've got beyond peak idiot stage. They're in that hill of knowledge where they know why they're good and they know how to get better and to keep adding to it. And that's why it's just a nice way of characterising the best fighters and understanding them, I reckon. I love that one. 
peak idiot. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Peak idiot, peak idiot. <laughs> Ma- Macklin, how are, you, how are you doing for time? Um, right for a couple of minutes. Okay, okay. Well, just just quickly then, because this is the... Actually, me and Damien had a chat yesterday about what we might talk about. Uh, and actually, of the things that I kind of prepped him for, we haven't talked about any of them. Um, <laughs> but we'll finish with one we did talk about. And we can do a part two down the line. We can do a part two, but just quickly... Um, one thing you hear in boxing a lot is from fighters is everything happens for a reason. And Matt kind of alluded to it earlier on. Um, and, and it is a it is a commonly held kind of belief with fighters. I, I think that they're well disposed to believe in something like that because they're by nature positive people and will react positively to setbacks and be able to look back and just think, okay, that wasn't great at the time, but look where I am now. It was all part of you know, God's plan or, or if you're religious or, or whatever it is or whatever it is. But I think that I think that's a dangerous thing for for normal people, if you like, to kind of stick by, because personally, I don't I, I don't think everything does happen for a reason. It, it's a kind it suggests a kind of fatalism or predestination for me, which I just, just don't think is is true. But do you, what I'm saying is I understand why boxers think it. Does that make sense to you that that if yeah. anyone's going to believe in that, they would believe in it? Yeah, I think some of it's a, like a bit of a disassociation. So it's a way of sort of taking the pressure off yourself. So that ultimate thing, some, for some guys, it's it's the idea of just taking that pressure off that whatever happens now is in is in fate's hands in many ways. But I think it what that betrays sometimes is that that's quite lazy to my mind of thinking that if you've done all the preparation and you've left no stone unturned and you've done the stuff we spoke about earlier in this podcast, you've done your five o'clock get ups. If that's what works for you, you've been in the gym, you've done the right things when nobody's looking. There's almost the case then of just let the process happen. So I get that that can be really helpful. I'm just going to go out there now and perform because I'm confident in my preparations. The danger is when when that moment of release kicks in. If you have that moment of release, I'm now just going to let this happen, the moment that first bell goes, I think that can be healthy because then that just allows you to fall back on on a great training camp and great habits. If you've got that mindset when you start the camp, I think you're in in serious trouble. You've got this idea of I'll, I'll, I'll go through the motions and I'll see what happens and everything happens for a reason. So I think that moment... Like I prefer to think of that as like a moment of release. When do you finally let go of worrying and just go and perform? But that shouldn't be anywhere in your mindset for a training camp. That should be leaving no stone unturned and being rigorous in everything that you need to do. Yeah, I think I think it's look. There's no it, it, the danger here is to try and make that absolute. Oh, everything happens for a reason. Or, you know, the thing is. You, you, you're only in control of what you're in control of. You're in control of making sure you're as well prepared as you can possibly be in every area of your preparations. Then you're going to go into the fight and you're going to have a game plan. And of course, you're not you're not asleep in it. You're consciously in the fight and you're going to react. But knowing that you're prepared, what's going to happen is going to happen. You're not in control of him. Things that things might happen that you haven't even possibly foreseen, do you know what I mean? Anything, an injury could happen. You don't know what's going to happen, but what you do know is I'm as prepared as I can be and I'll I'll roll with the punches. I'll be able to adapt and adjust to whatever happens. And in, 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 in other words, by kind of having faith as in what's meant, what's going to be is going to be. It, 
takes away the fear of overthinking everything that's going to happen, which only ends up draining your battery because you can't possibly know how things are going to play out. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, but you just know that. I just know if you're prepared for a fight and you're the fight and you're the changing rooms and you're it's the night before, or whatever, you just think everything's done and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And whatever, however, what way this fight unfolds, I am as prepared as I can possibly be. I believe in my ability. I believe in the game plan and the team and the tactics we've got. And I'll be able to adjust and adapt to whatever happens. Yeah. Also, in terms of looking back retrospectively and saying everything happens for a reason, sometimes in, in the moment, things have gone wrong. It hasn't worked out, whatever. So, you know, it, you're in a place where you, you've got it or whatever. But then I think also thinking, also then sourcing hope from the fact that, well, look, I don't know why this happened now, but I know that everything happens for a reason. And there'll be a less, there will be lessons to learn from this. And they'll strengthen me and they'll help me grow and develop. And maybe in five years' time or whenever, we'll look back and think, fucking hell, everything did happen for a reason. Because if that hadn't happened, this would, you know, X, Y, and Z wouldn't have happened. So, you know, I think... I think that's it, a brilliant point, Mark. But then what I'd say there is, I think that, that people assume that because it happens, we'll learn lessons from it. And I don't think that is the case. I think that I'm sure you're the same as me. I know lots of really stupid old people, but I know lots of really smart young people that experience doesn't make you smart. Experience and reflection is where wisdom comes from. That sitting down and then going, right, it happened. What could I have done better? How could I improve on it? What what would I do differently next time? That's where your wisdom then descends on you. But if you just do it and you go, oh, well, it just happened because, and that's where your thinking stops, you're going to make the same mistake again next time. You're going to, you're going to keep standing in shit and blaming fate for it. I think it it has to be that discipline then of accepting that it's happened, but marrying it up to, but now let's have a look at myself. Let's have a deep look at what I could have done better and differently next time. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've got to, it, it, it promotes change, doesn't it? You, you know, if you don't accept what you did wrong, if you're in denial about what happened or you don't accept why it went wrong, you're trying to, you don't want to take responsibility for your part that you played in it. Well, then you can't improve on it. But in order, in order to be able to improve, you have to look honestly at yourself hard and think, I didn't do that. I should have done this, whatever. Yeah. But I think sometimes in life, you know, not necessarily even boxing, you do look back and think, fucking hell, things that were painful at the time or I didn't get the break at the time or, or whatever. I actually look back now and think, do you know what? It probably worked out for the best because yeah. it led to a different path. Yeah, of course. There was a nice phrase. Though. We did an interview. I know this might sound a bit incongruous on a on a boxing podcast, but I sat down and did an interview with a really fascinating lad called uh, Marcellino Sambe, who's the principal lead dancer for the Royal Ballet. And again, it's very much an individual sport. And he I was talking about his preparation, like in the dressing room before he goes out on, on the stage. And he was like, oh, I'm asleep at that stage because I've almost disassociated myself from all the work that I've done at that stage. It's about being relaxed. And he had this lovely phrase. He said, when I go on the stage, he said, I imagine taking the seven-year-old version of me out there because at seven years old, I wasn't worried about consequences. I wasn't worried about fucking up or making mistakes. I just wanted to go and enjoy the experience of dancing and feeling free. And I remember when I was sat there and he was describing it and I was thinking, there's so many fighters that could do with understanding that. that at that stage, it's about like just going into the ring and just being the best version of yourself and not worrying about all the different factors if your preparation's right just go out there and take that version of yourself that just loves fighting for the art of doing it 
Well, I think when I was fighting, I've very much tried to, um, you know, once the, the morning of the weigh-in comes, you're, you're making weight, whatever, there's a bit of a buzz at the weigh you see a few people, et cetera, et cetera. You leave there, you rehydrate. But, you know, once, once I kind of left the weigh-in place, I tried really not to think about the fight at all until I was in the changing rooms the next night, you know, just because what's done's done now. Yeah, Rehydrating, yeah. refueling up. I'm not saying I didn't have, you know, a minute or two here and there where you're fighting through your head or you might, you know, you'd see someone and saying, oh, how you feeling? Good luck and all that. Yeah, you'd have little 30 seconds or a couple of minutes of a blast. But I would certainly wouldn't want to be talking or focusing on the fight for any prolonged amount of time. Definitely not. Yeah. I wanted to just leave it now. What's done's done. The work's done. And then, but then when I got into the change rooms the night and get your hands wrapped, time to switch on. That's where you go. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really powerful because it's nervous energy. Again, and I'm using lots of examples from recent interviews we did. Like I, I spoke to Kelly Holmes about this and she said her, her first big fight, if you like, in that terms was in 95 when she said she'd done a first track season. She won every race on the track and she got to the world championships. And she was she was up against this Moroccan woman called Hassim Bolmerka, who was like the world the Olympic champion. And she said, I hadn't prepared for this. She said, but the night before the race, she said, I couldn't sleep. And all I could think about was her and what she was going to do. And the day of the race, I was spending all day trying to distract myself. And the thoughts were in the head. And she said, and it was only when I got on the track that night that I realized how much energy it had taken out of my legs. The nerves and that worrying and me playing all those uncontrollable factors meant that when I needed to find that extra gear, it wasn't there. And it taught her a really valuable lesson that nine years later, when she went to the Olympic Games, she trained herself to do what you described there, Matt, of be able to switch off. Once you've done all your preparations, switch off, relax, conserve energy so that you leave your best out there in the ring or on the track in her case. You know, but all these are techniques that can be learned, I think. And that comes back from the, the idea you have the experience, but then whether you reflect on it, take accountability and marry it up to next time, you're smarter for the experience. That's where, that's again, where high performance comes from. Okay, so I'll, I'll wrap it up there because um, I've, I've done some acting what I generally do to our guest, which is say that we'll finish it one time and then keep it going for another 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes. But but the explanation you've given there, Matt, and, and, and that you've added to, Damien, that, that, that does really ring true with me because I do think there has to be some measure of not surrender exactly, but acceptance on the night or whenever it is that you've done everything you can do. And now whatever will happen will happen. You will do your absolute best to make it positive for you but there are still variables and random factors that come into it. And people, I think over the last 20 years with, with more scrutiny on sport and the increase in science and all the rest of it, I think there has been this belief that has grown up maybe among some observers that you could be so finely tuned and so highly trained and so best of this and that and everything in terms of facilities that it almost gets to the point where pros now in any sport shouldn't really ever make mistakes. They should be in total control of the quality of their performance, but it's just not like that because you've got someone trying to stop you doing what you want to do, and that's a massive spanner in it works. Anyway, this has been brilliant fun, and, and we'll definitely do it again. Um, but that's it. That's it for this for this episode. It was a little bit different, but as I said, we're attacking a lot of the same kind of themes that we touch on in various, maybe more oblique ways over over the weeks. Um, Damien, thanks very much. Um, we thanks will... Yeah, we'll definitely get you back. Um, and 
to everybody listening, thanks for tuning in as always. Uh, if you could get to iTunes and give us a rate and a review, that would be great. Get over to YouTube as well. Subscribe there. Um, and we'll see you again soon. Not that Maggie back in town. I said, Jenny Diver, whoa, Sookie Tawdry, look out to Miss Lottie Linya and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line forms on the right, babe. Not that Maggie. Back in Podcast Network.